0: Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. Federal officials had been working around the clock to try to find some resolution in the wake of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. And tonight, the Treasury Department, FDIC and Federal Reserve all releasing a statement saying that all depositors with money at Silicon Valley Bank will be made whole. That includes the depositors... Almost 15 years to the day that Bear Stearns collapsed, the demise of Silicon Valley Bank marked the largest bank failure since the 2008 financial crisis. Shortly after, and across the Atlantic, UBS agreed to buy Credit Suisse in a deal brokered by the Swiss government. I'm Alison Savis, and on this episode of the Good Value Podcast, I'm joined by James Rodder, Antipodes' developed Markets Portfolio Manager and Lead PM of the Antipodes Global SMID Strategy. And we're going to look at the state of the US and Europe's banking systems, how recent events may influence central bank policy, and the risks and opportunities we see, not only in global financials, but global markets more broadly. Welcome, James. It's great to have you back on the podcast. And you're on the front line, so to speak, weren't you? You were actually in Silicon Valley when the news on Silicon Valley Bank broke. So tell us about that experience.
1: Hi, Alison. Yep, look, um, very uh, interesting period, very hectic. I was in uh, San Mateo uh, the day that Silicon Valley went under, Silicon Valley Bank went under, just meeting companies in the region. Um, Actually, as it happened, I had walked in to uh, meet the treasurer of a a mid-sized CRM software company um, about half an hour before the uh, bank was... um, and announced to be you know insolvent and uh on walking in i obviously asked him the question about silicon valley bank and he said yes we they have accounts but they've now got accounts open at other banks um and they'll be transferring money out today so you know it's, it's not a problem so obviously when i left I, I left that meeting i got in the lift and the first thing i saw was that silicon valley bank was no longer um a bit of a shock, but probably not as big of a shock as, as, as what he had. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was really quite remarkable how, how quickly things moved at Silicon Valley Bank. Now, before we get into the state of global financial markets, let's start by taking a closer look at, at how Silicon Valley Bank unravelled. Most banks do run a mismatch between the duration of their assets, which is their loans, and the duration of their liabilities, which is their deposits. But what was special um, about
1: Silicon Valley Bank? Yep, absolutely, Alison. Look, that's how banks, um, banks make their money, I think. You know, the first thing to understand, though, was the difference in the concentration. So this was, let's call it a single industry um, bank and essentially a corporate bank with no retail deposits. So it was banker to 50% of all VC-backed startups in the U.S., trans, you know being the core transaction banker to those companies so it held their deposits um and cash flow uh, and and cash holdings and so what essentially happened here was um the i guess the backdrop was that venture capital had raised a lot of money uh in the period through to 2021 at uh, the end of 2021 and even early 2022 and and that money ended up in the in the banking system in a no deposit in a low interest rate environment or a no interest rate environment and just sort of sat in this bank and so their deposit base uh swelled you know very quickly um over the over over that time frame leading up And as we know, venture capital um, deploys their cash in companies. So you would expect that to disappear reasonably quickly as they deploy. And then also the companies they deployed to are startups by nature that uh, essentially, you know, burn money to try to get their business going. So, again, you would expect that cash to deploy, be deployed and, and spent very quickly. And what we saw was that as uh, venture capital stopped raising money for new funds, it uh, had, a, had a really big impact on Silicon Valley's um, deposit franchise. Um in terms of the you know the concentration and the speed that I sort of mentioned in the intro, at twenty five percent of the bank's deposits, around forty billion left in one day, um, and you know more requests followed. So, an extraordinary bank run to see that type of concentration, mainly because they all talk to each other, um, and. The liquidity left the bank. Now, if they had that uh, invested in liquid instruments at fair market value, no problem. The problem was that at at the low levels of interest rates, when all the money flowed in, they locked in very low interest rates on mortgage-backed securities, which are essentially in the US, typically a mortgage is a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. And so they may have had all of those deposits locked in at two and a half percent. And the market rate may have moved to 6%, so they were out of the money 20%. And any um, forced sale of those, the math was that forced sale of those mortgage-backed securities at market valuation, which they were not required by the regulator to um to represent the assets on their balance sheet at the market valuation but sales at market valuation essentially what would wipe out their equity and that's what caused the bank run they, they, they didn't do anything um illegal this is just purely um bad management you know ultra short-term fast money uh, being funded by or well, funding 30-year mortgages of <laughs> the ultra-long-term asset uh, that is also a fixed-rate asset in a you know, rising interest rate environment.
0: So even though Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank combined only account for around 1.5% of US bank deposits, so these banks weren't considered too big to fail. US policymakers stepped in very quickly. So all depositors were protected and the Fed created a new funding program for banks to access additional liquidity to meet deposit withdrawals should they need it. You know, so the the same situation didn't arise again, the same situation that we had with Silicon Valley Bank. Now, this has stabilised the system, well, at least temporarily. What are the possible consequences of the policy response so far?
1: So... um You know, Silicon Valley Bank customers, I guess, um, withdrawing their money was uh, a confidence issue based on, I guess, the other the the other side of their balance sheet. The main consequence from a behavioural issue, so you know, that we're going to see, and we're already seeing, and we will see more of more of, despite. Let's call it government reaction is corporate treasurers will now seek to diversify their banking relationships. Um, They will seek to have more of their cash sitting in insured deposits. Uh, They will move more of their deposits to large banks that have that implicit government guarantee at all times rather than leave it at small banks. And retail deposit holders may do the same. So this basically puts pressure on... um, Banks uh, that are, you know, the benefit the, the losers on that, uh, let's say, movement of capital to liquefy uh, securities, to raise money to meet the deposit redemption, um, and as we know from the Silicon Valley Bank example, many of those securities are, you know, mortgage-backed securities uh, and other securities that are underwater on a mark-to-market basis. And so uh, the Fed has come in and provided a facility called the Bank Term Funding Facility, which will lend to banks to help them fund redemptions uh, using these securities as collateral, and importantly, it will use those securities at face value. So the idea of this is to bolster um, confidence, um, even though we don't have a, a full concrete broad-based policy response yet. It is the main uh, policy response.
0: So unlike the 2008 financial crisis, where loans and asset collateral prove worthless, concerns around Silicon Valley Bank are not credit related. But based on what we know today, what could the longer term impacts on the US banking system be stemming from these developments?
1: Yeah. Look, the first one, and it's it's very obvious, is um, more regulation. So, questions that arise are: Will regional banks and smaller fi- financial institutions be allowed uh, to exclude um, you know, mark-to-market uh, uh, valuations on their security portfolios? Uh, will capital levels be monitored on a on a look-through basis, even if they were allowed to continue to not mark-to-market those types of securities? Um, perhaps there's a levy on the large banks um, as a result of this to prop up those smaller banks. Um, capital, you know, banks perform well as stocks often uh, when dividends are strong uh, and where sh- when share buybacks are strong. And marking to market capital ratios across all the banks, even even the major banks uh, adjusting for all their securities, uh, including their, you know, held to maturity securities, uh, suggests that the the banks are short capital from, let's call it a safe safe system level. So we could see several years of uh, cancelled or lower dividends from many banks and no share buybacks. Um, The last thing is, it's not strictly regulation, but the easiest way out, of this capital shortfall uh, is to lower interest rates and, and change the prices of these securities. Um, so I think at the margin, the capital shortfall in, in itself does help to incentivize lower rates in the US. Oh. Another thing would be you know, lower credit growth. So particularly sectors like commercial real estate uh, will fill this. So, regional banks account for about 40% of credit creation in the US. In some sectors, it's even higher. So, uh, it's you know, over 50% of commercial and industrial loans, small regional banks, and about 80% of commercial real estate loans. So, this will impact uh, the real economy and credit growth. Um, in commercial real estate, this is a sector that's already under a lot of stress. Um, we know that office property vacancies are high. Uh, we know that many holders of office properties are, are walking away and handing back the keys, which is putting stress on um, commercial commercial property funding markets. So, you know that sector in particular is really uh, looking like having a, a severe credit and. Um, a funding issue going forward uh, at the same time as you know we see lower valuations probably the last one and the the most uh, important one for the banks themselves as an outcome is a lower net interest margin so you know, these um, uh, securities are broadly held across the system um, it is much worse in some bank in certain banks and much better in other banks however we think the duration on the average mortgage-backed security has increased from, let's call it three and a half years at zero interest rates up to perhaps seven or eight years at current interest rates because who is going to refinance their 30-year mortgage at 7% when they're paying 3% uh, or, or 4%? So... Um, This portion of the bank's balance sheet that is is held in these securities is going to have this low interest rate for for an extended period of time. And as we see liquidity leave the system, banks will have to compete more aggressively for deposits and pay up higher interest rates. Uh, And at the same time, the banks that are heavily exposed to fixed rate assets, fixed rate long duration assets on their balance sheet, won't be able to... Um, pass on those higher costs of deposits to their borrowers who have already locked in their rates. So the profitability in the system is going to be impacted significantly. This is a multi-year impact. Again, one that can really only be uh, reduced via lower interest rates. And so we see you know several banks are potentially you know in trouble for an extended period of time from a from a profitability viewpoint.
0: Mm. So really, it is you know the key risks. Um, you know just to summarise all of that is um, well certainly what stood out for me was the risk of a credit crunch and what that means for economic activity, and and as you called out, James, certain pockets of the economy are very exposed. And then that issue um, that you touched on finally, which much more broadly is the implication for profitability of, of US financials, and in particular the regional banks. Now, you know, as, as, you, as you just touched on, there are going to be other banks sitting on large, unrealized losses in their bond portfolios um, in a similar way that, that what we saw with Silicon Valley Bank. Where do you see the biggest risks?
1: Yep. So, look, the first thing to probably keep in mind is that there are a number of banks that have uh, sufficient liquidity, um, sticky deposit bases, uh, strong core transactional relationships. And so certain deposits will leave the system for... um, Know, cash management accounts money market accounts etc uh, the majority of what moves from weaker banks will move to other banks and so the the, the most likely banks here are that the money center banks JP Morgan Bank of America Wells Fargo and city so let's call these your um, relative winners they're going to see more lower cost funding come in um, so we don't see um, large risks there uh, even though there are some let's call it mark-to-market losses for those banks. On the regional side, uh, First Republic's received a lot of attention. We think uh, unrealized losses there equate to um, more than 15% of the face value of of the bonds they're holding and almost two-thirds of the deposits are from corporate. So as a result, they have let's call it flighty deposits that can leave quickly um so we've seen that that bank come under a lot of pressure and there's several banks in that group another bank that we think is interesting uh is definitely charles schwab uh charles schwab uh let's call it similar to comsec in the united states elite one of the leading um retail stockbrokers what charles schwab does uh in terms of how it makes its profits is a bit different so they don't have any trading fees in the US so transactions are free and the business model is predicated off making some fees on um, payment for order flow there but the large majority of its uh, profitability comes from essentially offering clients uh, at the moment 45 basis points on a deposit on their excess cash and then going and investing that in a range of uh, interest-bearing securities. What they have done, unfortunately, is um, for, for themselves is they've bought a you know significant uh, amount of long-duration mortgage-backed securities where you know these are 30-year mortgages where the effectively the borrower has no um, incentive to uh, replace their three percent mortgage with something at market which might be more like you know five percent or above so we expect those mortgages will be enforced for a long period of time they're holding those securities at a couple of percent interest rate. And so uh, that really impairs their ability to uh, pay higher interest rates on their deposits. For example, some of the significant competitors like uh, Fidelity, Vanguard, uh, Interactive Brokers, Robinhood, et cetera, all offer in excess of 4% on deposits at the, at the moment available today or on sweeps to money market accounts. And if Schwab was to uh, lose those deposits, they may need to, um, they may consider selling bonds at a a lower rate. Um, Now, the Fed has come in and and somewhat backstop those, but uh, they haven't changed the interest rate. So if if those mortgage backed securities are, let's call it 2%, and they need to pay uh, 4% on, a decent portion of their deposits, obviously their net interest margins uh, can get quite pressured quite quickly. So again, it's another one where we think, you know, a slight change in um, account holder behaviour uh, could, could cause some challenges going forward for for that bank in particular, that bank's profitability. So there's different elements of pain in different parts of the sector. Different. In, in the sector, there's some relative winners who may still find it harder, regardless, like those major banks, but let's call them relative winners. Um, and there's some there's some outright losers um, that we can we can spot going forward as well.
0: So I think it's fair to say that um, we haven't seen the end of, of of the implications of what's what's unraveled at at Silicon Valley Bank. Now let's let's look at the European banking system. With with UBS's recent forced takeover of Credit Suisse. Is Europe going down a similar path to the US?
1: Yeah, look, we think there's um, a very specific issue on the asset liability mismatch. Um, And we've been underweight US banks uh, for an extended period now um, based on this um, mismatch. And whilst we're underweight... Banks globally as well we are overweight European banks and so we think that Europe definitely is not the same structure so um, so first of all there's less money market funds so when money leaves a European bank it tends to leave for another bank it tends not to leave the banking system and so um, net net that outflow of liquidity that can force competition for deposits and deposit pricing to rise is much reduced and the system is more stable um they also have a a better um asset liability um match and a much larger mix of floating assets so when they do need to pay depositors higher interest rates um, as they are demanded with higher, uh, let's call it uh, central bank cash rates, they can reprice their loans uh, because they are floating rate loans. Um, and indeed a lot of the banks that you know we're invested in and we look at, where they do write fixed loans, often they swap them to floating. And so they're very focused on this asset liability match. Um, Regulators have been stricter since the uh, 2008 crisis and since the European crisis that followed several years later. So we don't think you see the the excesses in the banking system that you've seen um, in in the US. um, And um, we also think you've seen much um, more conservative... You know, to match those much more conservative lending practices, you see, you know, higher capital levels. So um, two banks we've spoken about a lot, um, Unicredit and ING that we've held for some time, um, you know, they have excess, um, cap, you know, significant excess capital levels. I might talk about um, talk about um, one of them later on if you give me a chance to, to give an example, but... <laughs> Um, And then so, yes, Credit Suisse was there, but it it wasn't – it it again has a deposit base of, let's call it, higher net worth individuals with larger average balances and they'd had a – you know, it's an unprofitable bank. um, And again, it was a crisis of confidence. So they lost 40% of their deposits in 2022, um, most of them in Q4. And they were seeing accelerated outflows, uh, obviously, you know, earlier this year post, post the issue in the US. And so whilst that was a pretty negative event for them, we're, we're pretty confident that um, the banking issues are contained. Um, probably the um, thing that does concern us in Europe, and we've, you know, we've had positions here uh, back as far as 2021 is, you know, certain activity um, to protect the portfolio, certain activity that's happened, again, in the real estate market, lending into the real estate market, uh, a stretch for yield in that market where we've seen certain, you know, lower-grade office properties trade at 3% yields and and some of this behaviour. And so we have spent a lot of time trying to work out um, who's who's funded those loans, Um And look at the equity of the companies that receive those loans, uh, you know, starting probably two years ago.
0: Okay, that's that's interesting. So while we know there are risks in the banking system, the implications are perhaps wider than what investors realise. Now, James, I, I will pick up that little breadcrumb you dropped for me in the last answer. We have seen a big dislocation in European and US financials. Is this a buying opportunity?
1: Um, look, not in U.S. banks. Very happy to um, generally stay away, stay 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 underweight. I think if you did want to own anything at the moment, you'd look to the money center banks that are going to see um, inflows. I think that will be structural. I think it will be multi-year um, that this impacts, you know, corporate confidence. It might be a bit. The retail deposits might might prove a bit. Stickier for the smaller banks, and probably the other area that's you know interesting is banks with um, wider net interest margins, naturally wider net interest margins. Um, so less less sensitivity. So think about um, uh, things like. Um, Credit card loans, um, auto portfolios, and that type of thing, that you would be naturally very, very cautious of because of let's call it credit risk in the current environment. Um, but where the asset liability mismatch doesn't occur, and and you've seen those banks, um, you know, still take a hit in terms of their their share price recently. Um, the analogy here is again back to the the capital positions is Europe. Around 2013, I mean, it took seven or eight years until a lot of the sector as a whole was able to start paying a decent dividend, returning capital, buying back shares. And so, yes, those larger banks may be able to outgrow the system, but I think we're we're headed for a period of capital uh, rebuild and we're headed for a period of lower net interest margins. Um, So the preference still remains... And developed markets for let's call it European and UK banks. Um, we also hold a few uh, banking positions in uh, emerging markets. Um, we would say emerging markets, excluding China, um, that we're interested in as well. Just to give you an idea about UniCredit, um, you know, it has a capital ratio of sixteen percent, and this is basically, you know, the the risk weighted equity to loans is is, is a simplified way to think about that number. Uh, That's probably double on a mark-to-market basis where the US system's at. Uh, It's got about 30% of market cap in excess capital, of which two-thirds will be distributed to shareholders this year. Um, And they've basically wound up their bad bank, Uh, double-digit ROE is now starting to come through, Uh, very low price to book. 0.5, 0.6, 0.5, 0.6, And we think in the next four years we're going to see eighty percent of the you know the market cap of the company uh, just redistributed back to us as shareholders in the forms of dividends and buybacks.
0: Mm. Now something you called out earlier in in this interview was that the easiest solution is lowering interest rates. You know, the Fed and and policymakers in, in the developed world more broadly have been on a pathway of tightening. You know, to bring inflation under control. And and so the Fed is faced with a very difficult dilemma, you know, focus on inflation or financial market stability. Um, and, and look, you know, on the one hand, the Fed's decision to provide additional liquidity to the system in that initial aftermath of, of Silicon Valley's collapse is quasi-QE. But on the other hand, you know, we've just had the Fed recently hike policy rates, another 25 basis points. So, what what do you think recent events will mean for Fed policy?
1: Yeah, look, I think it certainly means we're closer to a peak, uh, if not at the peak of the tightening cycle. Uh, conditions have been tight for a while now, uh, but you see bank failures, and I think that does tighten conditions further. Not, uh, you know, not ignoring the the recent rate rise, but. Um, you know, we we're definitely near the end, and the in the bond market is suggesting that uh, money supply has already started to contract. Uh, you know, on a six month basis, it's, it's it's starting to be meaningful. It's the first contraction in you know the sixty year history of the money supply series. So, credit conditions, liquidity conditions in the U.S. Um, have tightened significantly. Uh, let's call it prior to. Um, prior to the the, the bank values. Um, keep in mind it was only a year ago where you know short term rates were close to zero and now they're five percent. And so monetary policy works with the lag and that lag, um, depending on what part of the economy you're in, typically it'll be you know nine, nine to eighteen months. So we expect the the full impact of these rises to be felt by the end of this year. Um And we're seeing stresses, so credit spreads are rising, um, repricing in uh, bonds of banks, um, tighter lending standards from banks. Um, And so that's really the market doing some extra work for the Fed and cooling the economy. Um, In terms of the ECB, uh, we recently saw a 50-point hike, uh, they're further behind the curve than the Fed in terms of the inflation fighting. Um, so we think there's probably a little bit further to go. But like the Fed, they'll be very sensitive uh, to the ex- yeah to the extent that there are any shocks in the banking sector or the rate rate, rate rises continue to um, impact consumer confidence or business confidence. And so. Um, we think that you know we're in a contractionary environment in terms of um, we're set up well to have a a contractionary environment in terms of the economy um, that does usually reduce inflation risks um, and so uh, all that adds up to potentially let's call it lower profits and and, and those types of things but also lower rates.
0: James, thank you so much for your insights on on what is a very uncertain time in global markets. Thanks, Alison. We'll have an update on our broader portfolio positioning in our next episode, so don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can get an alert when the episode is released in a few weeks' time. For further information on Antipodes, head to our website, antipodes.com, and you can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.
1: Please remember this content is general information only, it is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. Individual stock commentary is illustrative only and not a recommendation to buy or sell any security.